It is the first Sunday of the new year. We stand at the crossroads and our instinct is both to look forward and to look back. Um, Our passage today from Luke chapter 2 takes us to the very crossroads of drinking water before bed of God's work with his people. It's the place where the month-old baby Jesus is presented by his parents in the temple and recognised by Simeon. It's the place where the Old Testament meets the New Testament. The place where the New Covenant in Jesus Christ succeeds the Old Covenant between God and the people of Israel. The place where the promise of the Old Covenant is seen to be fulfilled. So to understand this moment and some of what it signifies for all of us, we need to look both forward and back. And the theme that emerges to help us combine the old and the new and to connect the past and the present in the present moment is a theme of dedication. So we're going to look at the faithful dedication of Simeon and Anna to God. We're going to look at the overwhelming and inexhaustible love of God for all mankind. And we're going to take time to think about the kind of dedication required of us in response to this inexpressible gift. So first of all, the faithful dedication of Simeon and Anna then. We pick up the story of Mary and Joseph following the birth of John the Baptist, which concluded chapter 1. And although Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, and although it was to Nazareth that they would return and where Jesus would be brought up, um, it's not in Nazareth. It's not in Nazareth that Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph have to leave Nazareth before the baby is born, because Caesar has decided there should be a census of the population throughout the Roman Empire, and of course Palestine, Israel was included in the Roman Empire at this time. The regulations of the census were such that you had to return to the place of your origin, and this required Joseph and the pregnant Mary to travel the approximately 70-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, um, a journey that would take several days. It was while in Bethlehem for the purposes of the census and in the most rudimentary makeshift accommodation that you could imagine, that the baby was born, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah, one of the latest, later prophets of the Old Testament. Micah is recorded as saying, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are far from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until she who is in labour has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the children of Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell securely. For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. So it is while the family are still in Bethlehem, after the visit from the shepherds, that Jesus is first circumcised and named on the eighth day and then presented at the temple. And it's 
the presentation at the temple that's our focus of attention for today. We're told there's a twofold purpose for the visit to the temple. The first involves the purification of Mary. And Leviticus chapter 12 had set out the rules and regulations that Moses had received from God regarding the status of women after childbirth. They were, they were to be regarded as ceremonially unclean. And if they had given birth to a son, they had to wait until 33 days after the ceremony of circumcision before they could have anything to do with anything sacred or have any contact with the temple. If she had given birth to a girl, the quarantine period would have been twice as long. We can assume that the visit to the temple came, therefore, at the end of this 40-day or so period of isolation when Mary would have been considered um, to, to, to be purified. Her purification would not have been complete, however, without the offering of a sacrifice. And they bring two young doves or pigeons, which Leviticus makes clear is the offering accepted from those who are less well-off and cannot afford to bring a one-year-old lamb, as would otherwise be expected. But the second purpose of the visit to the temple involves the presentation of the newly born child to the Lord. Unlike John the Baptist, Jesus is not the firstborn child of the tribe of Levi. So part of what had to be accomplished was the substitution of a Levite who would take up the priestly role on his behalf. And it's while they are there in the temple for the important rites of passage that they encounter Simeon another of these righteous and devout people we meet in the early chapters of Luke, a faithful servant of God, world-weary and tired of waiting. There's an echo of Simeon in the circumstances of Elizabeth and Zachariah, the parents of John the Baptist, who we've been thinking about in recent weeks. He too was righteous, blameless in the way he upheld the commandments, and then the instructions derived from the law. They too have been waiting. But Simeon had not been waiting for a son to be born. He'd been waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. What's very effectively and poetically described as the consolation of Israel. He had become convinced that the promise would be fulfilled in his lifetime. And something now prompts him to go to the temple. A movement of the Holy Spirit suggests that now may be the time when the promise will be fulfilled and he hurries off to discover what is happening. When he gets there, he encounters the baby Jesus and recognises in him the fulfilment of the promise that God has made to him. And as with Zechariah before him, so too Simeon is moved to sing about what it is he has discovered that day in the temple. And we'll look at the content of what has become a very famous and important song from Scripture in a few moments when we consider the dedication of God. Let's not forget, however, that while they were there in the temple, Mary, Joseph and the baby also encounter Anna, a prophet who is described, like Zechariah, as being very old. Since being widowed very early in her married life, she has taken up permanent residence in the temple, never leaving it, but instead worshipping God round the clock through fasting and prayer. She too recognises the baby as the fulfilment of the promised redemption 
of Israel. And we have to wonder at the perception of these folks to recognise in the figure of a baby coming into the temple the actual fulfilment of the promise of God. There's an echo of Anna in the life of the disabled man at the pool of Bethesda who waits and waits for healing but has no one to assist him down into the pool. But still he waits with a dogged type of determined dedication which one day is miraculously rewarded when Jesus passes by and heals him throughout the course to the water. There is a commendation through scripture for all of these people, whether merely patient like this man, but also faithful and righteous in their attitude to God like Anna or Simeon or Zechariah or Elizabeth. And some really profound teaching for all of us at different stages of our life and perhaps particularly for this fellowship at this stage in its history. That dedication and faithfulness are never more important than at the point of despair, when all hope seems lost and any further faith seems futile. For often it's just at that point that the promise of God is fulfilled in our midst and we recognise it for its blessings are unmistakable and undeniable. We're going to turn now then to the overwhelming and inexhaustible dedication of God to all mankind. We find this described for us in the Song of Simeon that was mentioned earlier. The song is recorded in verses 29 to 32, and the the song comprises less than 50 words. I said it's a very famous song, so famous that it has its own name taken from the old Latin version of the text. The name of the song is the, wait for it, Nunc Dimittis. We have a separate slide here, and I might be able to find it, with the words in the NIV version that we read earlier. Let me share this. Screen share. Yeah. Just want us to be able to see um, see the words. Sovereign Lord. So these are the words of, of Simeon in his song. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, you may have read this passage before, but never have heard of the Nunc Dimittis. Or you may be like me, who had noticed the term in an old hymn book over the years, uh, but until doing my preparation this week, I had no idea what it meant. I also discovered this week a a connection between the Nunc Dimittis and the oft-repeated closing lines of one of my all-time favourite TV series, where the words appear um, in the authorised version. Ah, 
Right, I'll mix this up. I'm going to stop sharing for a moment. Here are the words of the authorised version for, for this. Now, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And this that David's now about to share is Tinker Taylor. me in that. That's the nunc dimittis then. It's hidden from us in plain sight and with the words of the doxology thrown in for good measure. But what, what's the big deal about this song? Uh, the message renders these verses in the following way, which I think renders their meaning with greater clarity. Here are the words uttered by the patient and faithful Simeon upon encountering the baby Jesus in the temple. God, you can now release your servant. Release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes, I've seen your salvation. It's now Turn your home into a modern paradise for, for just £30 with the new LED light strip that's taking the world by... ...non-Jewish nations and of glory 
for your people Israel. So Simeon says, I'm happy now. Oh my God, I can now die in peace, knowing that your promise has been fulfilled and you have dedicated your yourself to mankind in this way. So what is the nature of God's dedication to mankind that is now out in the open for everyone to see through the birth of this baby? First of all, then, God's dedication to mankind is such that he gives himself. Jesus is not a tool that God uses to demonstrate something to humanity. He's not a go-between between God and man. Jesus is God himself. Jesus is God in Jesus, not just to tell us something about himself, but to communicate everything about his very being. Secondly, God's dedication to mankind is such that he comes in the form of a servant. He comes in weakness and vulnerability as a child into the midst of poverty and conflict. Thirdly, God's dedication to mankind is such that he takes on flesh. He takes on human nature and existence and takes it into unity with himself. Human nature and divine nature meshed in the being and life of the incarnate son. And fourthly, God's dedication to mankind is such that for the Jew and the Gentile alike, he solves the puzzle of our redemption by restoring our fellowship with God himself. If we were to summarise that then, through the birth of himself as a baby, God dedicates himself to us as a servant, taking on human nature, uniting human nature with himself in such a way that provides the means of our redemption, a route back to God, out in the open now for everyone to see. So when Simeon sees the baby Jesus that day in the temple at the end of his long wait for the promised Messiah, he realises that, as we sang earlier, the hopes and fears of all the years, past, present and future, are met in him this night. Such is the dedication of God to mankind. So finally then, what's the kind of dedication required of us in response to this impossible gift? In a couple of weeks' time, COVID permitting, Moira and I will be going to Bigger Kirk to attend a dedication service for our granddaughter, Hannah, born back in September. Parents or grandparents, the wider family and the church fellowship will gather together to make promises about how they will endeavour together to bring her up in the knowledge of God and in the Christian faith. For this Baptist audience today, I'm able to offer the reassurance that not a drop of water will be spilt in the process, though no, no doubt some tears will be shed and not all by Hannah. In the Old Testament book of Samuel, it is, of course, Hannah who dedicates her son to the Lord in a story reminiscent of Elizabeth and Zachariah's dedication of their longed-for son, John. There's a long history of the newly born child of people of faith being presented to God as the child's family asked for his blessing 
on the child, just as simultaneously they dedicate themselves and promise they will do all they can to bring the child up in the knowledge of God. And this is what we have seen Mary and Joseph doing with Jesus in the passage today. But if we can stand this on its head for a moment, how are we now to dedicate ourselves to this Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us? What is it that's required of us that we might be adopted into his family together with the Father and the Holy Spirit? What do we have to do to take advantage of all that is accomplished through his incarnation, his submission to the cross and his resurrection? The simple answer seems to be that we have to stop avoiding him and just surrender to him. The prodigal son had been avoiding his father in a variety of selfish ways for a long, long time. But as we read, when he came to his senses, the prodigal son said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. When the prodigal son has exhausted all the various ways in which he has tried to live life according to his own selfishness and self-will, he decides to turn himself in. The very worst that can happen, he reckons, is that he will be able to live the decent life of a servant in his father's household. He, He decides to fall back upon the mercy of his father and he is not disappointed. In the event, not only are his expectations of his father's forgiveness met, but they are totally surpassed. He is treated not as a servant, but as a son for whom nothing but the best is good enough and whose return home is the occasion of the greatest joy and the most sincere celebration. The dedication the Lord demands of us is our surrender. He wants us to come out of hiding and stop avoiding him. He wants us to get over ourselves, to realise the sham of our own self-sufficiency and just hand ourselves over to him at the earliest opportunity. For then, not only will our sins be forgiven, but we will be given our joyous share in his life of love and abundance, drawn into the very centre of God's life and being. A strange kind of dedication, this, you might say. Surely more is expected of me than to simply give in and hand myself over to him. Except that our entry into his embrace involves the complete surrender of our will to his. 
The rich and abundant life of God consists entirely of his will and requires that we lay down our arms of self-will at the checkpoint of his kingdom. My dedication is my surrender to him, both once and for all at the point of conversion and then each new day as I live my life in ongoing surrender, just like Anna, just like Simeon. And just like Mary too, the faithful and obedient Mary is told by Simeon in the passage we read that a sword will pierce her own soul too. This is because not everyone is going to accept the redemption God offers by giving himself to the world in this way for everyone to see. Many will speak against it, and Mary will have to stand at the foot of the cross and be a heartbroken witness to her son's execution as a result. This child, says Simeon, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, he says. Many of us persist in our outlaw careers, stubborn, self-willed renegades avoiding and trying to escape from the good news of Christmas. May we be counted among the many who surrender to the good news who surrender to the good news of Christmas, to the light and love of God revealed in Jesus, out in the open now for everyone to see. Amen.